Well, I think it's funny that when you buy a house or buy a home, one of the most important things about it is something you have no idea about. Like when you buy a house, you know how many square feet it is, you know where it is, you know what color the walls are, you know all sorts of things. But perhaps the one most important element that can change your quality of life in a certain place is the people around you, the neighbors, the neighborhood. And having moved several times in my life, and maybe you've moved more than once also, you know that maybe it would be nice to just test who your neighbors will be before you commit to buying a certain place or renting a certain place. Well, you're in part two of a series called The Art of Neighboring, and this isn't so much about finding the perfect place to live. This series is all about becoming the neighbor that God wants you to be. And it is so much more than just do these three things and you'll be a good neighbor. No, it's complicated. It's like an art. But we know what we saw in week one is that this is what the world needs now. Now more than ever, the world needs people who are able to reflect the kind of love that Jesus has for us. The compassion and the mercy that Jesus showed to us is something that the world needs to have reflected. And even if you're not a Christian, even if you're not sure if, if you believe in God, as you look at the compassion and love that Jesus demonstrated in his life, you would only agree the world would be good to have more of this. So last week we talked about how this is what the world needs now, and today we're going to get into some of the how to make that happen. And what I found for myself and listening to lots of people around me and listening to people a lot smarter than me is that there's one common thing that can prevent all of us, Christian or not, from reflecting the kind of love and compassion that this world needs. And I'm going to summarize it with five simple words, and then I'm going to invite you to think back the last time you were thinking this too. It's simply this. It starts with the phrase, I just don't get it. I've heard this used so much in the last several months, sometimes in a harmless way that we could all agree, but as we're also going to see, sometimes in a way that's negative and gets between us and the kind of neighbor that God wants us to be. Uh, For example, sometimes you can say, I just don't get it when you're talking about the coronavirus. In fact, I just heard this recently from some of my neighbors. I just don't get how some people, when they get the coronavirus, they have like no symptoms and other people go to the emergency room within a day or two. I just don't get how there can be such a wide variety of symptoms in different people. And some of these things are just curiosities for us human beings. Like, we don't get how things work all the time, and that's totally understandable. But unfortunately, what can happen negatively is when we take these five words and we apply them to another human being. There's two main ways we do that. Why, I just don't get why they think that way, and I just don't get why they act that way. And sometimes we take these words and we, in frustration, we voice them out to the people around us. Here's some examples I've heard recently. I just don't get how people can be so careless to not want to wear a face mask. On the other extreme, I just don't get how people are so willing to give up their liberties and force themselves to wear a face mask. I'm not taking a side, I'm just expressing what I've heard in both sides. I just don't get it. I just don't get how someone could disagree with a simple phrase like, Black Lives Matter. On the other extreme, I just don't get how someone can be so careless with an organization that has so much motive in certain directions. 
Again, I'm not taking a side. I'm not saying one is right and one is wrong. All I'm saying is that we are filled with confusion now more than ever. I just don't get why they do what they do. I just don't get how they act, why they act like they act. And I certainly don't get why they think what they think. And then this starts out as a difference of ideas, a difference of opinions, maybe, a difference of beliefs, but it's just one small step away from something much, much deeper than just a misunderstanding. What we do quickly with this is that we dismiss and we disapprove. We dismiss what they believe and we disapprove of what they do. We dismiss what they believe as irrelevant, as not founded in fact, as unloving, and then we disapprove of whatever action that belief led them to do. And you see this going on all the time. There's this judgmentalism going on. Whether your side is on the right or left or in between, there's, there's, there's dismissing of beliefs and there's disapproval of actions all over the place. And this is just one tiny step away from the danger that I want to look at today, a danger that Jesus himself addressed in a very unlikely event over dinner. We tend to dismiss and disapprove not just of what they believe and do, but dismiss and disapprove of them, the person, the people. You see, the art of neighboring is all about building bridges into people's lives, bridges that are strong enough to carry the love and compassion and perhaps the news of Jesus into their life. But if we just can't get who they are and what they believe and what they do, that is a recipe for dismissing them and shutting down that bridge altogether. I'm going to put it into words that, that I've been led to, and it's simply this, that for all of us, there's always going to be some degree of under, misunderstanding and unable to get what other people think. That, that's always going to be the case. And so the starting point is this, that it is a struggle to neighbor someone whom you struggle to understand. Because if you can't understand someone, quite often you fill that gap with fear over what you don't understand. And it's always a struggle to neighbor someone, to love someone whom you fear, whom you struggle to understand. But what I want to really address today is something even deeper. And this is an unfortunate place to end up because this will prevent you from being the neighbor whom God wants you to be. And it's number one today. It is impossible to neighbor someone whom you refuse to understand. I'm going to challenge you today, and maybe not me, Jesus is going to challenge you today as you think about in your own life, in your own decisions, in your own neighbors, maybe in your own neighborhood, how maybe you've been refusing to understand someone because you've already determined that you will dismiss their belief and disapprove of what they've been doing. But what we're going to see today is that Jesus is going to have an unlikely dinner with an unlikely person. And in the midst of this, we're going to see two sides unfold. What I love about what we're going to look at is that it addresses people who've been on both sides of this. Maybe you've been a person who has been misunderstood, <laughs> someone who's been disapproved of, and you've been dismissed, and right now you're feeling some ache because you feel like that odd person out whom no one wants to love. And if that's you, the story we're about to look at speaks love and purpose and hope into your life. And I know for a lot of us too, we're also that other person. We're the one who has been disapproving, and we're the one who's been refusing to understand others. 
And no matter where you are, and I think all of us are a combination of both, this story about a man named Levi is going to shape the way we see the world. So I'm going to get out of the way. I'm going to let Jesus take this topic further. And we're going to jump into Matthew chapter 9, where we see a man that at least the other writers, Mark and Luke and John, they refer to him as Levi. Now, what you need to know about this guy named Levi, he's going to be one of the main characters in this, in this story today in Matthew chapter 9. Levi was a tax collector, which means that he was a Jewish man who, who decided to, as his career, charge his fellow Jews taxes for the Roman government. And because things, the, the tension between the Romans and the Jews, Levi would have been one of those people who was disapproved of and dismissed. He would have been one of those people who the Jews just didn't understand. Like, why does he do what he does? Why is he thinking what he's thinking? Levi definitely was dismissed. But as we're about to see in Matthew chapter 9, Levi has another name by which maybe we're a little bit more familiar. See, Levi was one name for him. But the, the other name, the Greek name, is Matthew. Matthew, by the way, I think it's a great name. It means gift of God. But as we look at Matthew and his life, we're going to see how it is that this tax collector named Levi or Matthew is going to become, come to the epicenter of where Jesus gets to demonstrate what it means to neighbor someone if you struggle to understand them. And he's also going to strike to the heart of what you should do if you find yourself refusing to neighbor someone because you refuse to understand. So we're going to jump into the first moment where Levi, also known as Matthew, is telling his own story of the day that Jesus extended an invitation to him. And Matthew, he's writing this both from historical records, but also from his own personal story of the day that Jesus went up to this tax collector, Matthew, and invited him to follow. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, Matthew records this. He says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew, referring to himself, sitting at the tax collector's booth. So just picture this. He's doing his thing. People are walking by as they always have. Matthew is is used to this by now because people are dismissing him and shaking their heads at him as, as they walk by. And Matthew is doing his job of collecting taxes for the Roman government. And Jesus walks by. And because this is at chapter 9 already, you know that Matthew has already known quite a bit about Jesus and what he's been doing. But something remarkable happened. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Matthew got up. The other gospel accounts, they say Matthew left everything. He just got up and left, and he followed Jesus. And some people might wonder, like, why did Jesus choose him on that day and at that time? Matthew was by no means a religious scholar. He wasn't a biblical student. He wasn't going to seminary. He didn't know Old Testament scriptures as well as other people did. And it's not like Matthew even volunteered for the job. So why would Jesus pick a man to be his disciple who was disapproved of and dismissed? Why pick a man that had been discarded by the general population? Maybe it's because of what happened next. 
Matthew fast forwards through a lot of details, and so we'll take it a little bit slowly. But in verse 10, it says, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. And we just have to pause there because there's a couple things going on. Number one, obviously some time went by that Matthew was able to prepare a meal or a feast and, and have Jesus and his disciples over. But the other thing is that when it talks about having dinner or eating with other people, it's not just a casual thing like you're in a big restaurant and you're all kind of spread out. But in those days, having a meal with something is maybe in today's terms, what we would say is connecting over lunch. You're there on purpose because of a relationship and you're together. And what was most noteworthy was that Matthew was able to not just provide a house, but Matthew provided an unusual guest list that would come to this house for the meal. Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with Jesus and his disciples. And Jesus didn't stop the show. He didn't block them at the door. But we see Jesus do for Matthew and these tax collectors and sinners what Jesus always did. For those who were labeled and dismissed and disapproved of, Jesus always ignored the labels and he went to them. Jesus always took the people who were called prostitutes or sinners or tax collectors, and instead of shunning them like the rest of society did, Jesus spent time with them. He loved on them. He pursued them. He he forgave them. And sometimes, yes, he even challenged them. But what this episode, just from Matthew chapter 9 and 10, shows us, it's It's that Jesus doesn't dismiss people who are dismissed. And if you feel, if you've ever felt like nobody understood you or nobody got you, here's what Jesus would want you to know. While the world might not get you, and while you might be disapproved of and dismissed and feel like a loner, Jesus understands you. He knows your life. He knows what it feels like to be where you're at. And he intimately knows who you are. Which is good news because he knows you and it's good to be known. But it can also be troubling knowing that the son of God, who is both savior and judge, knows you and understands you. But here's the thing. I want to get to the good news right away away here in the message. The good news is that when you think about the way you've been hurt and the way you've been trampled on, maybe the the ways that you've been left off to the side at your own table, or maybe feeling like one of the outsiders, if, if that's been your feeling, I just want you to know Jesus understands you and that is a good thing. I also want to let you know this. If you've been the person who's been trampling others, if you've been refusing to understand people because you've already judged them and disapproved of them, Jesus understands you too. And he doesn't leave you by yourself, but rather he comes into our world as the one who would bear all of our loneliness and all of our guilt and carry that to the cross. Jesus understands you. And what that means is he can uniquely provide for you and give you what you need, which is peace and company and forgiveness. Jesus understands you. And I want you to let that sink in just 
really deep. Whether you come into this message thinking you're a good person or not, let it sink in that Jesus understands you because he who knows you intimately is uniquely able to be your savior and your friend through all of this. And having tasted the forgiveness that Jesus brings people, (laughs) having tasted the purpose that Jesus gives to people who feel lonely and, and forgotten, he now gives us a rule a rule that governed his decision for you, but a rule that, puts, that, that you and I can put into practice when it comes to the way God wants us to neighbor other people. And so while the first part of this story really deals with the people who are hurt, who are lonely, who've been disapproved of, who've been disregarded, the second half of this story challenges us, challenges that proudful part of us that might think that our facts and our ideas and our beliefs are superior to everybody else's and they should just fall in line. And here's how Jesus continues. There's, there's, this, there's this event where Jesus and the Pharisees have this, have this uh, butting of heads and these religious people who thought they had everything figured out and everyone else should just fall in line became a target. And as Jesus addresses them, he also gives guidance to you and me today. Matthew 9:11 says, when the Pharisees saw what was happening, that Jesus was eating with these people, they asked his disciples. So just picture this big room, lots of people gathered, and the Pharisees, as best they can, they just go up to Jesus' disciples, not Jesus himself, and they ask, why does your teacher eat with these people? Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? And the emphasis here is your teacher, the one you're following. You're his disciples. He's your rabbi. Are you really going to follow him where he is headed to? Because right now he is following the wrong crowd. Um, The Pharisees thought that being good with God, being righteous with God was all about separating yourself from sin and remaining pure in yourself and honoring and sacrificing to God. But Jesus was about to test that and, and rearrange that thought. The Pharisees asked, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And, and just think about this. Maybe even Matthew slash Levi was among the disciples that they addressed. I think that would make sense because this is Matthew's house. Hey, Matthew, you're in charge here. Why is it that you're allowing Jesus to eat with sinners and tax collectors? Maybe even pushing it into his face that Matthew himself was a tax collector and is still known as one. But it wasn't the disciples who answered this question. See, Jesus himself, as he's at this banquet, this feast, this this dinner party, he overhears what's going on and he steps in to address this very good question. Verse 12 says this, on hearing what these Pharisees said, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And I have to think in that moment, Levi is like putting his, his hand in his head and <laughs> shaking his head back and forth because basically Jesus just dissed everyone at this party. These are sick people. These are helpless people. These are hopeless people. They need help. But at the same time, Matthew and the others totally understood what was going on. The Pharisees thought that they were fine. They thought they were good with God. In fact, the Pharisees thought they were in such a position that they could stand up and teach these disciples of Jesus a few lessons. Jesus said, you've got this backwards. 
you think you're healthy, you think you're fine, fine, go be healthy. I've come here not for healthy people, but for people who are sick. I haven't come here for perfect people. I came here to find those who were lost so that I could save them. And the next sentence, in a, in a phrase that only Matthew records, because I think this was a, a phrase that made Matthew just stand back and gasp at what Jesus said. In this next phrase, Jesus directly confronts these teachers that had a, confronted him, and he in turn tells them that they need to learn something important. Jesus turns around and, and he says, go and learn what this means their position was not to stand up there and lecture Jesus or his disciples. Jesus said, you need to get out of here and go learn. Translation, you, what I have to tell you, I can't just give you a truth and then that's good. You need to go and practice this. You need to go and learn this from experience, what this means. And then Jesus re refers to an Old Testament prophet named Hosea. He says this, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy not sacrifice. And that one sentence would define so much of what Jesus would teach throughout the rest of Matthew's account of Jesus' life and throughout the rest of them too. The Pharisees, these religious people, thought that as long as they honored God and served God and sacrificed to God, things would be great. But Jesus said, you're missing the big picture here. God doesn't need your sacrifices. He doesn't need your, your tithes, your offerings. But what does get after God's heart is mercy. And we'll get into the distinction between those in a second. But Jesus goes on to clarify what he means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but I have called to come sinners. Mercy not sacrifice. Mercy, not sacrifice. And in this, tr this simple truth, but deep truth, what Jesus is going to do is equip you and me. This is something I discovered this week that I'm so excited to share. But he equips you and me with this rule. I call it the mercy rule. This rule that more than any other helps us to dismantle the misunderstanding that can cause us to dismiss and disapprove of the people around us. He, he gives us this one rule that helps us to avoid all the trouble and hardships that can come because of that phrase, I just don't get it. And the rule has everything to do with the difference between sacrifice and mercy. Sacrifice is what we offer to God. And this was such a common thing throughout the Bible. Offerings, sacrifices, bringing animals to the altar, bringing offerings to the temple. These were all examples of sacrifice. And the Pharisees thought, they figured that as long as they sacrifice enough, as long as they follow enough rules, that's all they need, that God would be happy with them. And that was one part of it. But at the end of the day, it was a sacrifice that God would offer for us that would make him happy with us. It was the sacrifice of God's own son that would make him happy with you. So that right now, when God thinks of you, when he looks at you, he is pleased with you, not because of what you've done for him, but because of the sacrifice Jesus made for you and because of the perfect life that Jesus lived to give to you. God is pleased with you because of sacrifice, but not your sacrifice, his and because of that, that completely shapes the way we see mercy. The appropriate reaction to sacrifice, the sacrifice God made, 
is the reaction of mercy. Sacrifice is something that defines your relationship with God. Mercy is what defines your relationship with people. And the appropriate way to react to sacrifice that God made for you is to have mercy for the people around you. Mercy is simply the compassion to help those in need who have done nothing to deserve your help. To help those in need who have done nothing to deserve your help. And so with this thought, with this teaching in mind, where Jesus says, go and learn what this means, this leads me to what I call the mercy rule. The rule of mercy, where if you put this principle into practice, it will filter down into your relationships in life. It'll help you to see people differently, and it'll help you to constantly react based on the sacrifice God made for you so that you respond in mercy for the people around you. And the rule is very simple. It's very simple. Number three, love is invested before trust is earned. Before someone can even earn your trust through what they do or what they say, your reaction as a follower of Jesus is to respond to his sacrifice by giving them mercy, by giving them love. Love is invested in other people before their trust can even be earned. And maybe this principle is mostly an application for people who are maybe on the fringe of your life, like people you know, but people you haven't really interacted with. People that you're aware of, but people that you really haven't let in because maybe you disapprove of what they believe or you dismiss how they see the world. This principle, more than any other, will shape the way you view people because God's sacrifice for you in Jesus should shape the way you extend mercy to the people around you. Love is invested before trust is earned. And would you make that maybe a little bit more personal for your own life this week? Instead of putting this in passive, like love is invested before trust is earned, would you make this a personal declaration for yourself? I will invest my love before people can even earn my trust. I will not expect them to make the first gesture towards me so that they can build up trust but maybe my expression of love, of generosity, of kindness, of compassion towards them, that will be the first act of a bridge to build a relationship into someone else's life that will help me carry the love and maybe even the message of Jesus to them. And here's what I know. As you go out, as you go and learn, what you'll discover is that different people simply just have different questions in life. And yeah, we have different ways of seeing the world. Maybe we have different ways of reacting to the world. But everybody has a question that they're wrestling with. And what I know is that Jesus is the answer. That person who's on the fringe of your life, whom you haven't really gotten to know yet because you don't trust them, what I know is that they have a question and Jesus is the answer. And the only way you'll know what their question is, is to get to know them. Get to know them. Extend love to them even before trust is earned. And maybe that's the first step in building a bridge into their life that will help you carry the love and compassion that God showed you into their life. 
So last week, I concluded with a couple of difficult questions. In fact, I think it was three questions. So this week, we're going to keep things a lot more simple and a lot more open-ended. And it's a question or some homework that I know if you think about, it will make you more of that neighbor that God wants you to be. More of someone who has received the benefit of God's sacrifice for you, and you simply let that overflow in mercy for the people around you. Would you just ask yourself this question? What does go and learn require of me? What does it require of you? Go and learn doesn't mean that you go and pitch your good points to the people around you. It doesn't mean you blast your beliefs onto other people. It means you become the student. You set aside your good points and your one-liners, and instead you get into someone else's world by asking them the questions. What does go and learn require of you? What does it require of you to show mercy and compassion to people who have not earned it yet? What does it look like to extend love before trust is even earned? Those are difficult things to think about, but maybe there's one relationship in your life, one person on the fringe of your relational network that you know you've not been connecting with because you've been dismissive and disapproving of what you've determined them to be. What does love require of you? What does go and learn require of you this week? I pray that as you are compelled by the sacrifice God made for you, you would simply react by showing mercy to the people around you. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, the simple act of sending your son into this world was a gesture of mercy that we cannot comprehend. You showed your love. You demonstrated your grace, not just to people who hadn't earned your trust, but you showed your love and forgiveness towards people who had destroyed your trust. We had broken our relationship with you, and yet through the sacrifice of your son, you made us whole and you forgave us. I pray that you'd simply give us the motivation, the compulsion, the, the, the love, the fullness of heart, the fullness of forgiveness, that we would be on fire to just go and show mercy to the people that we know. That even if they haven't earned our trust yet, or even if they've broken our trust, that we would be able to simply forward on to them the mercy that you showed to us. Bless us as we take those steps, knowing that it's not about finding the perfect neighbor, but as we follow you, as we follow Jesus, it's about becoming the neighbor that you want us to be. I pray all those things in Jesus' name. Amen.